Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Friday, December 2nd, 2022. It's been 3,201 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 282 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that the Kremlin is trying to control the information space to assuage Russian war hawks, who continue to express frustration and disappointment with the lack of progress in Ukraine. Second, we maintain that Russian President Vladimir Putin is facing unrest inside and outside the Kremlin. If there continue to be military failures, there is a remote chance Russia could face a regime change. Third, We assess that the risk of terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure is high, with another round of attacks likely this week. Fourth, we maintain that Russia will not stop until the Ukrainian electrical grid and natural gas network are completely destroyed, or Russia's supply of missiles and drones is exhausted. Fifth, we maintain that the risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction, is possible. Sixth, we maintain that Russia is conducting stealth mobilization and may be preparing for the second wave of partial mobilization in January 2023. Seventh, we assess the slowdown in combat operations on multiple axes will end in the next 10 to 25 days, with winter weather conditions starting to sweep across Ukraine. Eighth, we maintain that neither belligerent will institute a winter pause. Ninth, we maintain that President Putin's inner circle is actively targeting Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu for dismissal and replacement due to continued military failures in Ukraine. Tenth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations. Eleventh, We maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. Twelfth, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. And finally, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine has diminished, but remains a possibility in the next 40 to 70 days. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. 
Along the Kharkiv-Luhansk administrative border, fighting continued in Novoselivsky and Kuzimivka, with no change in the situation. The Russian Ministry of Defense continues to overstate the tactical situation for reasons that make no sense, considering Russian forces have effectively defended the P-7 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line. Russian forces made another attempt to seize Stelmachivka and were unsuccessful. Mercenaries with Rybar reported continued fighting for the control of Ploshanka, and the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported the town was shelled throughout the day. The GSAFU also reported that Ukrainian forces repelled a Russian attack in Chervonopopivka, confirming our assessment from Wednesday's episode that mercenaries with Wargonzo had hinted in their report that Ukrainian troops had entered the town. Private military or PMC Wagner Group Channel Grey Zone released pictures of a Ukrainian technical that had been destroyed, quote, near Kremina, further indicating Ukraine is advancing in the area. The Russian social media channel Rybar also reported fighting in the settlement. We didn't adjust the map today because the new report aligns with our assessment from earlier in the week. A before and after video showed that Ukrainian forces secured the Kreminska electrical substation four kilometers southwest of Dibrova, confirming the ongoing advance in the area. Positional fighting continued east of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, with no change in the situation. Serhi Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Russian VDV forces from Kherson had been transferred to Starobilsk. Haidai described the units as, quote, the last such serious, combat-capable armed units of the Russian Federation, end quote hinting that the 76th Airborne Assault Division is among the units that were moved. Ukrainian forces may have given them a warm welcome, with Luhansk People's Republic or LNR officials and the Russian state media agency TASS reporting that the city was hit by at least four rockets fired by HIMARS. LNR officials also reported Khoroshe and Svatova were hit by HIMARS, but did not provide any information on targets or casualties. It took almost 10 months, but operational security, or OPSEC, appears to be improving among Russian forces. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showed a thermal anomaly in the western part of the Verknokomyanka oil refinery, indicating that Ukrainian forces shelled elements of the 2nd Army Corps of the LNR that are using the facility as a base of operations. In northeast Donetsk, Russian DRG units attempted to approach Siversk were located, attacked, and returned to their starting point. A reconnaissance group with PMC Wagner attempted to scout Ukrainian positions near Vyemka and was also discovered and attacked. The GSAFU reported that Spirne and Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk, were shelled throughout the day, indicating the small force that moved past the line of conflict was not part of a larger advance. Bakhmut continues to see the most intense fighting in Ukraine. Russian forces have pulled in more artillery, ending the near parity, when force multipliers are considered, in September and October, and outgunning Ukrainian forces 9 to 1. There is more clarity on the situation south of Bakhmut along the T-513 highway and railroad line. Not a single source we track reported fighting in Solidar or the surrounding settlements. Positional fighting likely continued. Fighting continued east and southeast of Bakhmut, with no change in the situation. 
Intense fighting continued in Opitne, four kilometers south of the city. At the time of recording, the situation was fluid in Kurdyomivka, with pictures showing PMZ Wagner in the southern part of the settlement. Many sources considered the settlement under Russian control due to the geolocated information. The GSAFU reported continued fighting, and Rybar reported, quote, cleanup operations were ongoing. There were unconfirmed reports on social media that Ukraine had retaken the town, but this is likely misinformation based on the GSAFU report, which only reported continued fighting, not liberation. We did not change the map from this morning's update and consider the settlement a no-man's land. Klishivka is still under Ukrainian control and, as we assessed on Wednesday, will be challenging for PMC Wagner to capture due to terrain and natural barriers. The Russian MOD claimed the hamlet of Andreevka was captured, again, and we see nothing to dispute the claim and express our congratulations for the third capture report this week. A broken clock is eventually right. It has been 203 days since Ukrainian forces withdrew from Svetlodarsk, and in that time, PMC Wagner has advanced 21 whole kilometers at the deepest point. That's about 100 meters a day. At their current rapid pace, they'll reach Kyiv in 2041. In southwest Donetsk, after a sharp increase in fighting on November 30th, the front quieted down with mostly artillery exchanges and positional fighting. After being pushed back, elements of the 1st Army Corps only engaged in positional fighting near Pirvomaiske and did not attempt to advance on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelske. Fighting near the center of Marinka continued, with the 1st Army Corps unable to advance. Russian millblogger enthusiasm for an impending victory at Marinka has evaporated, using words such as, quote, effective and, quote, well-prepared to describe the Ukrainian defense. Russian forces continue to attempt to flank Marinka by advancing into Krasnohorivka. Mercenaries with Wargonzo described the fighting as positional in nature, with a heavy exchange of artillery. The GSAFU and Wargonzo reported that Ukrainian forces successfully defended Novomikhailivka, with Wargonzo reporting Ukraine launched a counteroffensive. The Russian MOD reported that Ukrainian forces launched an unsuccessful attack on Volodymyrivka. We cannot verify the veracity of the report, which was not echoed by sources we trust or on social media. The GSAFU reported Ukrainian positions in or near Pavlivka were shelled throughout the day, hinting there continues to be ongoing fighting in the no-man's land of the shattered settlement. The People's Militia of the DNR Telegram channel released their 5 o'clock follies, claiming they destroyed one self-propelled 152mm howitzer, three D-30 122mm howitzers, four tanks, and ten units of, quote, armored and automotive vehicles. They did release a video that appears to have been recorded using a potato that shows DNR artillery units killing one Ukrainian soldier, maybe? Look, if you think we're being unduly harsh, we do link to a video released on November 30th showing Ukrainian forces striking a Russian mortar position south of Velika Novosilka in Blachodatne. Not recorded using a potato, and the drone video clearly shows the secondary explosion from ammunition cooking off. The pair are worth watching for comparing and contrasting so-called evidence from each belligerent, 
As always, we do link to both videos in our full situation report on Patreon. Basic supply issues continue to plague the DNR. Members of the All-Russian People's Front delivered mattresses and consumer-grade sleeping bags in very non-combat-friendly colors for use by local militia forces. Ukrainian forces continued to shell Russian positions in the occupied territories. Natural gas service and electricity were knocked out in Ilovaisk due to shelling, which damaged an electrical substation. Horlivka was also shelled, along with the western districts and central part of the city of Donetsk. Local officials reported an employee from the Ministry of Emergency Situations was killed in the attack. The administration building and parking lot of the Department of Internal Affairs in the Kiev district were heavily damaged. Self-declared leader of the DNR, Denis Pushilin, reported that all restrictions on travel from the occupied territories to Russia had been lifted. Okay, but we thought that Donetsk was a part of Russia after the illegal annexation. Was that not the whole point? Was that... Can, can someone clarify? Was that not the whole point? Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia, there was mutual shelling by both belligerents across the Dnipro, with a near doubling in reported artillery strikes. Russian forces conducted 34 fire missions on the free Ukraine territories west of the Dnipro River, targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure. Russian artillery targeted civilian and industrial areas in Kherson and civilians and civilian infrastructure in the Bereslav rayon. A woman in Kherson was killed in her apartment by shrapnel during one of the barrages, and two more people were injured. Kherson was heavily shelled during the overnight hours, creating multiple fires in the industrial district. A Russian ammunition depot was destroyed on the east side of the Dnipro in Kakhovka, with reports of multiple secondary explosions after the strike. The location of a significant amount of ammunition goes against multiple reports of Russian withdrawals from the river's east bank. Ukrainian officials claim that a Russian attack on the Kohovka main canal on the river's east bank caused the pumping station in Lyubimivka to flood completely. If true, the inability to pump water in the canal could impact irrigation and drinking water for the occupied regions of eastern Kherson and southern Zaporizhia. Kohovka main canal directorate employees said the seals to the base pumping station located 16 meters below the water table, broke for an unknown reason, causing the flood. The equipment will be irreparable if the water is not pumped out within a month. Some assessment here. The long-term implications of the water flow in the canal failing or being restricted would extend to Crimea, which depends on the canal for much of its water supply. Ukraine didn't get much rain during the fall season, and the destruction of numerous dams has left reservoirs low. We had assessed back in March that securing water to Russian-occupied Crimea was likely one of the real justifications for the wide-scale invasion of Ukraine. Rybar reported that Ukrainian forces launched offensive operations from Potavka and Malanivka and used 120mm mortars to strike nearby Russian positions. There were no other combat reports in the area, and we can't verify the veracity of the report, but the information provided was specific and Rybar did not make any wild claims. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is unchanged, and the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, has not released a statement since November 25th. 
Energoatom and Ukrainian officials labeled Yuri Chernichuk a traitor for becoming the managing director of ZNPP, working for the Russian state-run company Rosatom. Energoatom wrote that Russian occupiers would meet with the remaining employees and pressure them to sign Russian contracts. The main intelligence directorate of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GUR, reported that Rosatom employees are engaged in money laundering by misappropriating funds meant for ZNPP. Fictitious corporate cards are issued on paper to Ukrainian employees, and fake invoices are submitted for parts orders and repair work that never happened. It was also reported that the number of Russian troops billeting within the facility dropped to 500, including 200 Kadyrovites. So far, no videos of them playing catch with a warm, glowing piece of dark gray metal have emerged. Yet. Russian forces attacked the city of Zaporizhia during the overnight hours, striking an industrial area, an electrical substation, and an administrative building in one of the suburbs. Pictures released by Zaporizhia Oblast administrative and military governor Oleksandr Staruk showed heavy damage and an electrical substation in flames. Russian forces south of Huliapola and Orikhiv have suffered close to a thousand casualties over the last five days after relentless HIMAR strikes on Tokmak, Injenerne, Polohi, Basan, Mikhailivka, Chernivka, and shelling near Enerhodar. Suffering unsustainable losses, the Russian Ministry of Defense started withdrawing the troops further south from the concentrated areas they were billeted in close to the line of conflict. Some assessment here. While some analysts consider this withdrawal an indication of an impending Ukrainian counteroffensive toward Tokmak or Melitopol, we believe this was a logical and correct action to protect morale and force strength. There is no evidence that Russian forces are completely withdrawing from the cities and towns south of the line of conflict. Beyond the ongoing HIMARS strikes, there was sporadic artillery and tank fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv and Odessa region, Vitaly Kim, Mykolaiv Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Russian forces lobbed artillery shells into the Dniprovska Gulf near Ochakiv without causing any damage. Power was knocked out in the Bashtanka rayon, impacting 87 settlements. The cause of the outage was unclear at the time of recording. The GUR reported that the city of Zhankoy in Russian-occupied Crimea had been turned into the largest military base in the region. Pictures showed that Russian forces had placed concrete barriers at key points and bridges to slow the flow of traffic. The Russian-appointed head of Occupied Crimea told the Russian state media agency Sputnik on November 23rd, quote, All reservoirs are full. There are no risks for water supply. End quote. The claim was Orwellian and made before the pump station for the Crimean Canal was flooded, with pictures showing the Taigon Reservoir reduced to two shallow areas. High winds have suspended ferry service across the Kerch Strait, causing a backup of over 500 trucks. Reports by the Russian Ministry of Transportation that the two lanes of the Kerch Bridge had been reopened in late November were false, 
with repairs clearly still ongoing. The train tracks have been deemed unsafe, with only 16, quote, light trains crossing since the October 8th explosion partially destroyed the connection to Russia. The Russian Black Sea Fleet has seven vessels on patrol, none of which are missile carriers. In western and central Ukraine, in Dnipropetrovsk, Russian forces attacked Nikopol and Marchenets twice, with heavy artillery during the day and up to 40 grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, during the evening. A man was wounded when an artillery shell hit his apartment. In north and northeast Ukraine, Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko, speaking at the Kyiv Security Forum, said that if heat is knocked out in the city for more than 24 hours while temperatures are below negative 5 Celsius, that's 22 degrees Fahrenheit, the water would have to be drained from the city boilers until the spring, leaving most of the city without heat. Klitschko remained defensive after accusations from Parliament and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky that he was not doing enough to support the city's residents through the ongoing blackouts, saying, quote, There are three and a half million people in Kyiv today, and 430 heating points is ridiculous, and 500 will not help, 5,000 will not be enough, end quote. The GSAFU reported the villages of Kostobobriv and Chremyak in the Cherniev Oblast were shelled. There wasn't any information on damage or casualties at the time of recording. Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the Romadas of Shalakin, Esmin, Yunakivka, Znobnovhorodsk, and Miropilia were attacked by Russian forces from across the international border. Over 105 rounds were fired on the border region of the Shalakin Romada throughout the day, with no injuries reported. Esmin was struck 21 times, and in Znobnovhorodsk, a granary and power lines were damaged. In Kharkiv, a Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for a ground attack struck a five-story apartment building in Kluhino-Bashirivka, injuring two pensioners, partially destroying the top floor and blowing out many of the windows. Moving on to the Russian front, Bilgorod's governor reported that air defense was active in the city overnight with no strikes, and villages in the Veloisky and Shebyakinsky areas were shelled. There weren't any casualties reported. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. In a further sign that Russia is stepping back from launching another wide-scale missile attack this week, the MiG-31K multi-role fighter bombs that can launch Kinzhal hypersonic missiles returned to Russia after being stationed in Belarus. Deputy Chief of the Main Operational Directorate of the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, Brigadier General Alexei Hromov reported that during the previous week, Russian Tu-95M strategic bombers had flown numerous sorties near Saratov, Samara, and Orenburg. These operations caused several nationwide air raid alerts, but it appears it was either training exercises or a psychological operation. In Wednesday's episode, we outlined why Russia appears to be pausing its attack on Ukraine's infrastructure. More evidence emerged that Russia used more than one inert KH-55 missile as a decoy during massive missile attacks in October and November. Colonel Mikola Daniliuk, a representative of the Central Military Scientific Department of the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, said that the serial numbers had been intentionally destroyed on the KH-55 decoys before they were launched. 
Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was in rare form. He held a press conference led by Kremlin propagandist Olga Skabeva after he completed a solo OSCE livestream that 13 whole people watched. He told Skabeva, quote, We didn't just get up and go to war against Ukraine just because we didn't like Zelensky. End quote. Oh, he didn't say special military operation. Quick sidebar. Although this may seem minor in Western circles, someone in a position as high as Lavrov using the W word was actually a significant slip. During the same press conference, Lavrov was asked why Russia was targeting civilian infrastructure in Ukraine, including in territory that Russian Federation claims as its own. Digging deep to Channel Ye, Lavrov responded, quote, We were bombing Nazis in Stalingrad, too. End quote. I don't think he had to dig too deep for that. Okay, so just so that we're clear, special military operations, Satanists, and LGBTQIA are out. War and Nazis are in. While Lavrov wasn't allowed to attend OSCE, Moldova called for withdrawing Russian troops from Transnistria at the Warsaw Confab, stating, quote, The illegal presence of the Russian armed forces violates the sovereignty and neutral status of Moldova. We strongly call for the complete and unconditional withdrawal, end quote, of Russian forces. Currently, there is the unaddressed problem that Russian troops in Transnistria are landlocked and can't withdraw if they want to without entering NATO or Ukrainian territory. More videos show that Rasputitsa controls the battlefield, impacting both belligerents. Muddy conditions will continue into the next week when high temperatures are expected to stay below freezing across most of Ukraine. The Ministry of Defense of Ukraine released a video showing light infantry soldiers using paintball guns to be trained in urban warfare tactics. The provided pictures, because the truth matters, did not instill confidence in the training they're receiving. The Security Service of Ukraine, or SSU, conducted another counterintelligence raid on the monastery in Transcarpathia, where agents found Russian propaganda materials and pamphlets evangelizing the Russian mir of Belarus and Ukraine as being one with Russia. In the liturgy, Patriarch Kittel of the Russian Orthodox Church, who has called for the killing of all Ukrainians and oversaw the destruction of Ukrainian Orthodox books and religious materials, was still venerated, and a memorial was built in his honor. Church officials said they faced excommunication from the priesthood if they did not comply. At the Kiev Pechersk Lavra, uh, Lavra is like a kind of a monastery, one of the priests and his acolytes were notified that they were suspected of taking illegal actions during church services. Ukraine is negotiating with other nations to find a supply of S-300 anti-aircraft missiles. The munitions aren't produced in Ukraine, and they don't have manufacturing capabilities. Dozens of nations use the air defense system, but finding a donor willing to part with their inventory while waiting for new air defense systems may be challenging. Sweden announced another aid package to Ukraine valued at $338 million for additional air defense systems and unspecified military equipment. The Nordic nation is also joining the Black Sea Grain Initiative, allocating 10 million euros to purchase grain, meal, and food-grade oils for low-income nations. 
Germany also announced a fresh batch of military and humanitarian aid, including three Beaver bridge-laying tanks, eight unmanned surface vessels, or USFs, 12 additional border protection vehicles, 30 ambulances, and cold-weather gear. Norway announced it was transferring five hospital buses to Ukraine, fulfilling a request sent through NATO's Euro-Atlantic Disaster Response Coordination Center. Lithuania announced it was providing Ukraine with another 25,000 winter uniforms, valued at over 2 million euros. The Parliament of the Czech Republic has authorized training Ukrainian soldiers on their soil. The decision will provide training resources for 4,000 troops, that's a full brigade, in 2023. The United States was reportedly negotiating with Middle East nations to reallocate some NASM's air defense systems to Ukraine. Greg Hayes, CEO of Raytheon Technologies, said building new systems takes two years due to the electronics and rocket engine procurement process, and the transfer would get additional air defense systems to Ukraine faster while using ongoing production to backfill inventory. Any transfer will have to be approved by United States President Joe Biden. United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, quote, As Ukraine continues to seize momentum on the battlefield, President Putin has focused his ire and fire on Ukraine's civilian population. Heat, water, electricity, for children, for the elderly, for the sick. These are President Putin's new targets, and he is hitting them hard. This brutalization of Ukraine's people is barbaric. End quote. The NATO nations of the United States, Germany, France, and the United Kingdom have provided over 50 M142, that's HIMARS, and M270 launchers. While the Russian MOD has claimed to have destroyed more HIMARS launchers than have been delivered to Ukraine, PMC Wagner Telegram channel Greyzone speculated that only two or three have likely been destroyed due to Russia's ineffective intelligence gathering. The United States Department of Defense claimed last month that not a single M142, M270, or their European variants have been destroyed. At the end of the NATO summit in Bucharest, all 30 member nations agreed that Ukraine should be allowed to join the alliance at the end of the war. By the war's end, Ukraine will have the most real-world battlefield experience among member nations. While the NATO alliance is extending overtures to Ukraine, Turkey and Hungary continue to drag out the ratification of membership for Sweden and Finland. Speaking of dragging out, let's talk about Russian mobilization. A column of Russian military equipment was recorded on a train moving towards Ukraine. Russia has lost 8,200 pieces of military equipment since February 24th, including more than 40% of its active main battle tank fleet. Russian President Putin said that the mobilization of students in the DNR and LNR has ended, and up to 3,000 have been returned home from the front lines. Russian mill blogger and LNR soldier Murs lamented that Russia is sending faulty lead-acid 12-volt batteries to power and recharge radio communication equipment. According to Murs, the destruction of Ukraine's power grid has the unintended consequence of making it difficult for Russian forces to recharge and operate their electrical-dependent equipment. He wrote, quote, Under the slogan, the military has a lot of money, they will buy any garbage, this is where the bullshit comes in, end quote. Morse also correctly pointed out that lead-acid batteries lose amperage in cold weather, 
and keeping them warm for maximum output is an additional challenge. On behalf of a grateful nation in Yakutia, the commissariat cut ice from lakes to give to families of deployed Mobics. Apparently, if you're a family member of a Mobic, finding below freezing temperatures in Yakutia in December is an issue. A mother of a Russian POW went directly after Russian President Putin in a video as frustration with the special military operation quietly grows. Irina Chistyakova said, quote, This is my son and I need him. Putin does not need him and Shoigu does not need him. They are sitting. They are warm. They are not in the trenches and not in prison for eight months in Ukraine. The Nazis, as they say. The question is, why do the Nazis make our prisoners look normal? Maybe you are not telling us something, and they're not the Nazis. Are we cattle? We did not give birth to our children so that someone would solve their problems. End quote. Rybar wrote a lengthy screed condemning the continued use of so-called picture reports by the Kremlin and Russian military commanders. Examples cited included the commander of the Air Force and Air Defense Armies who had troops learn songs and only come to formation in authorized uniforms and equipment to look perfect for pictures and videos. Another commander brought a mobile sauna to the front for a nighttime photo shoot, which resulted in a mortar attack. Wait, no, wait, there's more. Rybar called out the United States Navy as a best practice example citing a study that determined that PowerPoint was a detriment to training and readiness. Russian forces engaged in a friendly fire incident in occupied Kherson, resulting in 14 soldiers killed when an artillery round hit a tent near Tsukuri. BMC Wagner Telegram channel Greyzone started another fundraiser to aid Russian Spetsnaz. Their Christmas wish list included thermal imagers, batteries for DJI Mavic drones, gun sights, and first aid kits. Some assessment here. If the Russian Ministry of Defense can't properly equip its elite forces almost 10 months after the wide-scale invasion of Ukraine, we are left to ponder how they will equip another round of Mobics in the early spring. While Dmitry Peskov denied Russia would do additional mobilization last week, the Kremlin has barred all male employees of Putin's administration from traveling abroad for business or vacation. Peskov, in an apparent contradiction, said, quote, These rules will be in effect until the issuance of a special order on mobilization, end quote. While not clarifying what the special order would be, Putin has not asked the State Duma to end partial mobilization, so legally, further waves could happen without additional authorization. The Russian Mobics from the Serpukhov region of Moscow, who walked off the front line near Svatova after their commander ran away, have a new problem. They released another video claiming they have not received edible food in a week, and the humanitarian aid coming into their base is rotten. The washing machine, nope, sorry, raccoon, that was stolen from the Kherson Zoo very well may be a special agent of the Ukrainian armed forces. During a meeting with the occupied Kherson Gauleiter Vladimir Saldo, the Kherson raccoon said, Back off, man, and tried to take off one of Saldo's fingers. Yesterday, we reported that many of the KH-22 cruise missiles Russia uses are failing mid-flight. John Ridge provided an excellent write-up on why this is happening. So, the last KH-22 missiles were built in 1988, and have a rocket engine that uses a two-part hypergolic fuel.
That means when the two compounds come in contact, they spontaneously ignite. The R201-300 rocket engines are a maze of pumps and tubing with numerous sensitive seals, which likely haven't been serviced since the missiles were built. If any seal starts to leak, it creates a chain reaction with the hypergolic fuel, destroying the missile. All is going to plan. So, I hate being the bearer of bad news, which is kind of ironic given this is the war crimes and human rights section, but there was more theater-wide and Russian mobilization news today than we expected. So we'll delay our special report on an ongoing Russian disinformation campaign in Mariupol and the people behind it to tomorrow so it can get the attention it deserves. Thank you for your patience. Moving on to geopolitical news, President Biden said he's ready to discuss the possibility of ending the war in Ukraine with Russian President Putin. But only when it becomes apparent that the Kremlin wants peace, saying, quote, I will choose my words very carefully. I am ready to talk to Putin if he really has an interest in finding a way to end the war. He hasn't done that yet. If that's the case, then in consultation with my friends and my friends in NATO, I'll be happy to sit with Putin to see what his thoughts are, End quote. Officials in Spain have labeled the package bomb sent to the Ukrainian embassy a terrorist attack, as the number of targets and the investigation expands. The Spanish company Instalsa also received a bomb through the mail, as well as the Torrejón de Ardos Air Base, the Ministry of Defense Spain headquarters, and the United States Embassy in Madrid. Dimitro Kuleba, the Minister of Foreign Affairs for Ukraine, said in an interview that two more Ukrainian embassies had received threatening packages. In economic news... The United States Department of State has permitted the oil company Chevron to expand oil production in Venezuela to replace a small oil shortfall caused by sanctions against Russia. The license is valid for six months and auto-renews at the start of each month. The license prohibits any payment of oil royalties and taxes to the Venezuelan government. In addition, Chevron will not be able to conduct operations with Russian-controlled companies operating in Venezuela. The Biden administration has been working through back channels to improve frayed United States-Venezuelan relations since the start of the wide-scale invasion of Ukraine. Qatar Energy and ConocoPhillips signed two agreements to export liquefied natural gas, or LNG, to Germany as part of a 15-year agreement that starts in 2026. According to Qatar Energy CEO Saad Al-Kabi, this is the first long-term LNG supply agreement made with Germany. The ruble was in decline, falling to an exchange rate of 62 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices were mixed, with WTI crude steady at $81 a barrel and Brent falling to $87. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market declined, trading at $2.34 per gallon for December 2022 contracts, or $0.62 cents a liter. The United States' national average price at the pump for gasoline dropped to below pre-war levels. Dutch TTF gas futures were extremely volatile, rising to almost 170 euros per megawatt hour, before settling at 138 for January 2023 deliveries. The price also declined for February 2023 futures, dropping to 139 euros. Chicago SRW wheat futures drifted downward, 
trading at $7.75 a bushel for March 2023 contracts. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone.